Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we look at the technology of the pandemic and what new models are likely to emerge from the public safety measures we've hacked over the past two years with Monash University's Dr Mark Andreevich. But first, our wrap of the latest news with Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Guardian Australia Managing Director Dan Stinton. Let us look at what has been happening over the past fortnight. Now, the first thing is there was a federal budget. And while people look at the federal budget as this big picture political document, it's also a whole bunch of line items on the administration of government. And Lizzie's been digging deep into what we can learn about the government's view of tech and public interest. And what did you find, Lizzie? Two big items that I just thought I'd raise. Everybody's probably heard about the first one, which is a $10 billion investment in cybersecurity. The other one that I think is worth keeping in mind as we move through this phase is that there was some new funding for the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, but there's a long-standing problem with that office you know, they're currently projected to have their budget halved by 2025-26, so in a couple of years. So in essence, this is an office that does really important work as a regulator, I think. It deals with privacy complaints, it deals with FOI disputes when an FOI is rejected and someone wants to challenge that decision. It also manages the mandatory data breach notification scheme And we are currently undergoing a review of the Privacy Act, which may mean that, in fact, many more privacy complaints are brought because it's possible there'll be a direct cause of action in court as a result of that review. But also just generally, the Privacy Act may well be expanded as a result of that review. And the government has chronically underfunded this office for years And we know we're heading towards a funding cliff and they're not doing anything about it. Is this a surprise that it was going to be cut? There's been this scandal ongoing for quite some time about, you know, the funding situation that office is. They only relatively recently appointed a person responsible for FOI, so a commissioner responsible for um, making findings in respect of FOI appeals. But that office had been vacant for ages and they got a little bit of extra money to manage that. But in essence, what the government appears to be saying is, oh, we expect privacy complaints. The backlog to have been dealt with by that time so we can halve your funding. And this is not a massive office. Like there's 150 people who work there more or less. But, you know, they have targets where they're supposed to resolve 80% of privacy complaints within 12 months. I've got one that I've made professionally through my work and it's been (laughs) nearly over two years and we've only just proceeded through the first stage realistically. So it's just chronically underfunded. So, yeah, this has been a routine problem that the government has had. You, You may have your suspicions as to why that's the case. I think it's really interesting that in that same day that that announcement was made or that there was no no further funding announced for the office, Josh Taylor from The Guardian had a win in in respect of an FOI. You might have seen Josh requested text messages from the PMO from Scott Morrison's phone that related to his exchanges with a member of essentially a QAnon conspiracy theorist, and he was refused. There was a decision made by the office which has allowed that to proceed. So they're now going to have to hand over text messages that relate to the PM's correspondence with one of his close friends, who is a QAnon conspiracy theorist. And That was a very sensible decision in my view, and I think Josh has done really great work, and that's what journalists should be doing, but it shouldn't take that long. And also, it's an essential 
regulatory service having this office do this work? Because, of course, government doesn't want to hand over information, especially when it might be politically embarrassing, let alone detect companies that have privacy complaints made against them want to do much about it either. So this office is critically important in our day and age and it should be mm-hmm. better funded. Dan, obviously, the way that you can manage government departments that are exerting power is to defund them and they, by definition, have less power and less influence. What's been your interactions with this office and what's your take on the budget in general? Look, I haven't had specific interactions with this office, but I just, I, I find this decision absolutely baffling. I mean, this is this funding cut is being done at a time when there's a review of our Privacy Act underway. I, I'm pretty sure that every single submission to the Privacy Act review discussion paper was called for more resources for this department, not less. And so the fact that they have cut this is just it's a really, it's, it's flabbergasting, to be honest. And I would make the point, I mean, I think you see the downside of this on a much larger scale in Europe in particular, where they've brought in GDPR to manage privacy, but there's been virtually no enforcement of it. And so this office, in my view, is effectively the the, the tool that we've got in our arsenal to be able to deal with that when we actually get our privacy act together. So it's it's a really baffling decision. I'd also make the point that this has also been done in the same week where earlier, very quietly, the government shelved their plans for the online privacy bill, which was this sort of precursor to the Privacy Act review. That is welcome, by the way, because I think it was a very hurried and kind of unclear piece of legislation, but it does sort of demonstrate to me, or at least call into question, just how serious a commitment this government has towards privacy and ongoing regulation. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm surprised. I'm genuinely surprised. I, I, I can't understand why they would have done this. Although there are other parts of the budget that the tech industry, at least, has welcomed the Tech Council, which is a peak body of the, the major tech players in Australia, thinks this is a, a good budget. Lizzie, I think there's long-term targets, but also money behind the targets to build the industry in, in Australia. Is that a good thing? Feels like it. Sure. I mean, yeah, like... <laughs> I don't really have a stake in being a booster for industry. They can do that themselves, I think. But yeah, I mean, they're trying to get women into tech and the argument that the Tech Council says is, well, these are really high paying jobs and women are underrepresented in the industry as well. So this is a great path through for them. I mean, the other thing I just did want to mention is that $10 billion for cybersecurity is just an enormous investment. There's some questions around how quickly that comes about, but, you know, a lot of these jobs may well be in cybersecurity. The ASD, the Australian Signals Directorate, a surveillance agency in essence, is set to have double in size, but actually probably more than double in its capacity, but recruiting 1,900 new people. So we're talking about the Office of the Australian Information Commission having 150 people in total. ASD is going to recruit nearly 2,000 people as a result of this budget boost. So, you know, there's money for some things and not for others. And it's just always the case that people's rights get deprioritised as compared to scaling up government's capacity to surveil people. And this is in a context in which we've had two decades worth of legislation that has empowered surveillance agencies that we can expect now that our surveillance agencies will be doing offensive operations, probably with very little scrutiny. And that should be a cause for concern for us in partnership with their Five Eye colleagues, like the other intelligence agencies around the world that we collaborate with in the Five Eyes. I can foresee a situation where we're looking at more cyber warfare, where Australia is a more central player than it needs to be. And that's not necessarily good for for our citizens' digital security. But again, there's not really the the funding or the capacity being devoted to advocating for digital security for citizens. It's all about protecting and and empowering surveillance agencies instead. The story I was just going to highlight this week for people was the one, I think it was a week ago in Fairfax, that one of the largest super funds, HESTA, is using its power as a holder of funds in Facebook slash Meta 
to call for greater action on misinformation. The chief executive of HESTA accused the social media giant of posing a threat to public health by spreading misinformation that fuels vaccine hesitancy. HESTA's chief executive, Debbie Blakely, is saying Facebook's social license to operate has been undermined, citing everything from live streaming the crisis massacre to spreading COVID-19 conspiracies. And here's where it gets interesting. Hester's filed a shareholder resolution ahead of the US company's annual general meeting in May, calling for greater disclosure around how misinformation is managed. And she also says she's had high-level confidential discussions with another a number of other large Australian super funds about some Supporting the shareholder resolution. Now, I've always been a bit lukewarm on super funds exercising their power because it often feels very incremental, but I am very interested that they are now putting big tech on their radar because they haven't in the past. In fact, if you invest in an ethical tick in your industry super funds, chances are that is largely invested in Alphabet and, and Meta. And the reason that ethical funds seem to be going so well if you are investing in it is because they are investing in Alphabet and and Meta. So I'm interested in the other guys' takes on this. So Australian industry super funds, huge financial players that, that don't really use their muscle. I wonder whether, I'll start with you, Lizzie, and then Dan, whether you see this as being significant or is it just virtue signaling? I'm curious to hear why you also, Peter, don't think this is a useful exercise and that it's too incremental. One of the things I would say is obviously the other place in which this occurs is in relation to divestment from fossil fuels and divestment from businesses that facilitate fossil fuel exploitation and sales, so banks as well. And I would say that big shareholders have contributed to an environment where social governance, environmental governance is now a key part of how companies make decisions and they've seen the writing on the wall in relation to that industry. Now, you could make the claim that that's because fossil fuels is a a dying industry on one level, but I think that there is a role for large investment funds to try and propel forward either regulatory changes that require this kind of reporting or, you know, industry organisational changes. So removing these kinds of companies from listings in or ethical investment pools. So I think there's really utility in clarifying some of these debates and that there is a role for super funds to play in doing this. I think that it is a source of power that we can wield. I don't think it necessarily can solve all our problems, but it would be a mistake, I think, to overlook the capacity for large funds to have an impact on how companies are governed, including requiring them to comply with things beyond the bottom line. And, you know, I think it's largely good that it's also a health fund, you know, the the framing of this move is very much framed around health and they're representing people in health industries and this is a company that's dangerous to people's health. I think that's a very useful framing for the public debate around the role. I guess I just think the ask in this is quite limited. So I think it's a really significant step that they've opened the, the conversation, but I know that when I've seen it in the past exercise, particularly through the, the more peak bodies of industry funds, they'll do things like they'll, they'll seek further information on executive remuneration without actually changing anything. So I think they, obviously inside that industry, it's probably as Byzantine as ever, any other industry in understanding how decisions mm. are made. And I get that I'm an outsider, but sometimes I feel that what is done linked to what the outcomes are at the end it's not exactly sort of taking over the barricades, is it? Dan, your view, is this the start of, you know, responsible businesses maybe not carrying an advertising from these big companies as well? 
<laughs> you trying to put me in the corner there, Peter? Uh, <laughs> um, uh, yes, full disclosure, we uh, we have several agreements in place with uh, with Facebook or Meta. Um, but look, coming back to this, I, I think this is really welcome, to be honest. I, I mean, I take your point, Pete. Maybe one uh, super fund doing this isn't enough to move the dial, but. I mean, I would make the point, I think that Australian um, super is about the third or fourth biggest bank of savings in the world, which is not bad for an economy, which I think is about 20th. And we can thank the greatest Australian that's ever lived, Paul Keating, for that. But anyway, I digress. Um, point I would make is if if HESA can convince the rest of the industry super funds to go along with this, I think that is that is actually a pretty substantial amount of power. Now, will it be enough? I don't, I don't know. But governments requesting, largely just requesting Facebook do this around the world has clearly not made them become more transparent. In fact, we've probably seen the opposite thing happen. So maybe this is something that will happen. Maybe because if, if the industry super funds can all band together and do this, as well as other significant investors around the world, then maybe this will start to impact on their share price. And maybe that's the thing that will make Mark Zuckerberg make a difference. So, I mean, I think this is this is a welcome step. And I, and I would draw the same analogy or the same comparison, if you like, that Lizzie did, that we've seen this happen with fossil fuels and that the, the noose getting tighter and tighter on the funding sources for those kinds of industries. And I think we're just now catching up. We're just now catching up to the harms that are being done by some of these big tech players. So I think this is really welcome. And I hope they get everyone else along the line as well. So Simon's made the point, Simon Carter, um, post-crisis massacre, NZ super led a consortium of super funds, asset owners, with an investor statement requiring the social media giants to be much more responsible with the propagation of violence, asset owners are beginning to build confidence in this space. And I guess that is the outtake of this. The other comment, which I'm just scrolling back because it was a beautiful segue, Nicola, Digital Markets Act is EU taking aim at these kinds of big tech companies again. Dan, what's your special subject this week? <laughs> Perfect segue, perfect segue. Yes, I was going to talk about this topic this week. So a bit of background for those of you that haven't been following this. So last week, EU officials agreed on the final wording for the Digital Markets Act, the DMA, which is part of a long-awaited overhaul of, of digital regulations, and it has pretty significant implications for, for global uh, tech. Now, it still needs approval. It's likely to become law later this year, but it seeks to prevent the biggest tech firms from dominating digital markets through some pretty significant fines, which I'll come back to. So firstly, this regulation targets the so-called gatekeepers. So these are companies with a market capitalization of at least 75 billion euros and at least 45 million monthly users, as well as having a, a platform like an app or a social network. So think Google, Microsoft, Meta, Amazon, uh, Apple, and the like. Now, the fines, which I'll get to what the act does in a second, but the fines for not complying with this, really significant, up to 10% of a company's global annual turnover. So not just their turnover in Europe, but their global annual turnover. And for a repeat offence, that goes up to 20%. So really significant fines if the companies fail to act. So anyway, let me get to what the act actually does. There's a lot here, a huge amount actually, which to be to be honest, I'm still kind of getting my head around it all, but there's three parts of it, which I think are the most significant and, and worth reflecting on. So the first one is self-preferencing. So companies would not be allowed to rank their own products or services higher than those of others in sort of online search results or, or the like. So Amazon, for example, couldn't prioritize their own products over competitors in their marketplace. Google couldn't do the same when they're shopping. And similar to this, none of these platforms could make use of their market power to have default installations. So for example, Google couldn't have the Google Chrome browser, for example, being the, the default browser, which is pre-installed on all their, all their devices. So that's a self-preferencing component. Two more. Interoperability is the other one. So messaging services and social media platforms must work with each other and basically to allow them to communicate with each other. 
I think this is really good in theory. It does though, as far as I can tell, spell the end for end-to-end -end encryption though. So I think there's a really significant trade-off with going down this path, which I think really needs to be debated before it becomes law. But the third point is the one which I'm most excited about. One of the worst things about GDPR or the unintended consequences, if you like, of GDPR in Europe was that first-party data became something which was hugely valuable, but first-party data was anything from any service and you could combine it in one place. For example, Google could combine the data from Maps, their, their data from Gmail, their data from the advertising businesses, all in the one place making it very, very difficult for anyone who didn't have their reach to compete with them. What this law does is it seeks to make that illegal. So you can no longer combine data across different services like that without the explicit consent of consumers, which hopefully wouldn't be forthcoming to give the rest of us a chance to compete. So anyway, this is really welcome. Like I said, there's a few things which I'm concerned about with it, but I think it's definitely uh, moving in the right direction. Can you hear what you think? I Well, I'm not entirely convinced that's True, or there's not a way to technically accommodate that, but I, I may be wrong there. I mean, I sort of understood the interoperability as being that it allows users to up and move between services. So you don't get this situation where you're locked into a particular kind of service because all your data is on there or all your messaging services are on there or whatever. So it's about giving consumers the power to move data and then facilitating functionality between platforms to do that. Which I would have thought, I mean, I don't know, Dan, I think you're the expert on this, not me, could still permit end-to-end -end encrypted services. It just may be more difficult to integrate that with other platforms, but also, anyway, people may not want to move that data anyway. I mean, I think there's a lot of different kinds of ways in which end-to-end -end encryption is useful. One of it is to commit to exchange messages entirely in secret where you don't want to be surveilled by the government as well as private companies. There's some good utility there. It's also just to protect you as a safety measure from being hacked by criminal hackers, even if you're not, you know, Edward Snowden, reducing your surface area of attack and making sure that people can't intercept messages and, and spoof things and send you things that you don't want to read that you accidentally click on and they get access to your device. These kinds of things is, is why internet encryption is also useful and why it's been rolled out as a mainstay of many different platforms now as standard. But I, I'm you know, I, I would have thought that is a pretty important priority <laughs> to facilitate ongoing encryption for even just basic services. But uh, yeah, look, it's pretty important that that be discussed properly and, and that the benefits be weighed against the potential consequences of abandoning that. Sorry, one quick point on that. I, I certainly wouldn't call me an end-to-end -end encryption expert, but I just would make the point that a lot of people who are experts in this, certainly from what I'm reading, are saying that this basically makes that impossible. And, and I guess just the one point I'd make on this inter interoperability part of it is it is welcome in a sense. I mean, because it's, it's, it's anti-competitive, the fact that a lot of these services aren't interoperable. But I'm just making the point, that probably the broader point, that the trade-off of that is that it's really hard to make them interoperable without compromising individuals' privacy. So that's the trade-off that we're effectively going to be making here, I think, if we go down this path. And that really needs to be, to be debated carefully before this becomes law. But sorry, over to you, Mark. Yeah, I'm interested in your take there, Mark. Yeah, thanks. I mean, probably my hobby horse in this area is, is the surveillance capitalism model and the fact that this is going to require explicit consent to use personal data for targeted advertising. Um, that's the overall model for the platform economy. So coming at that is actually, to me, that's, that's the interesting angle of attack, because as long as you have, you know, competition is great, I'm all in favor of competition, but if you have competition around the same model, which is 
data-driven surveillance economy, you're just going to get more of that economy. But this, this particular restriction, re which requires explicit consent, is really interesting. I, I mean, we could open that up to some skepticism. Is something similar going to happen as to what happened with GDPR? You're going to get a pop-up window. It's going to be really complicated if you try to do any other option beside explicit consent. It might just play out that way. But uh, it, that's an interesting angle. I, the, the other thing I was just going to say is, as Dan mentioned, the fines are really, those are substantial. And the companies have been getting away for a long time with paying, you know, getting tiny hand slaps for their violations of uh, all types of regulations. So to see this have a really substantial penalty is interesting and raises the question, you know, to the extent to which this will actually have a deterrent effect. This looks more plausible than, than the other fine regimes. But if we really get those pools of money, it's an interesting question to figure out how those might be used creatively to, to come up with an alternative model to this online surveillance capitalism that drives these platforms. Lizzie, anything else you want to add there? Oh, no, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think there is utility in these things being debated and introduced, even if they don't apply to our jurisdiction, because then it becomes a model for everyone else to follow. So, you know, we're going through this process of reviewing our Privacy Act. I don't know why we couldn't draw on these examples to introduce our own laws as we see fit locally to better protect users. So it's a good thing for sure. We talked about the Digital Privacy Act review, which is underway. There's also the Advertising Technology Services Inquiry underway by the ACCC, where many people are calling for exactly this last point, these purpose limitations effectively to, to improve the competitive nature of advertising. So I think... Um, when you say many people, you mean you, don't you, Dan? <laughs> many people at The Guardian are calling for this, that's right, Pete. <laughs> Excellent. Look, let's dive deep with our special guest, now, there are very few people that both Lizzie and I can make claim to, but Mark is both a board member of Digital Rights Watch and a fellow with the Centre for Responsible Technology. Professor in Communications and Media Studies at Monash Data Futures Institute. He's part of that amazing network of academics who is doing the long-term work on artificial intelligence and the future of society. And we've had a number of those academics, Axel and Tim, in the room in the past, but Mark, I do joke that you're the seer. You wrote the first chapter of the Public Square Project, which you were talking about how you, I'm not saying you saw things coming, but things didn't feel really right in the 90s about the way that the internet was being turned into a performative tool where people appeared willing to give up a whole lot of their identity in order to be at the centre of attention. And we've watched that theory sort of become a reality over the last decades. But I always am interested in what you write about what's going to happen next because you've been right in the past. When it came to the pandemic and the lockdown two years ago, April 2020, you, you wrote a piece, I think it was just on the Monash site. It should have been published more widely, but I just want to read a couple of pars from it to open up the discussion today about how what seems like a rational response to a crisis builds a whole bunch of consequences down the track. So this is what you write. I don't even know if you remember this. Under the pressure of urgency, we find ourselves turning to the tech giants, despite recent concerns about the clash between their commercial priorities and the public interest. As we turn to them in our moment of need, we are in effect providing public license for new uses of information they're already collecting, and this will be difficult to undo. All kinds of data can be repurposed as health data and often without the restrictions that typically apply to medical information. We can anticipate an ongoing incursion of tech companies into health services and markets with fresh rationale for comprehensive monitoring and tracking. 
If they can help manage a pandemic, why not also the annual flu season, for example, or even the onset of heart disease? We can certainly imagine potential benefits to the diagnostic capacity of our mobile phones, smart speakers and their associated platforms, but also important concerns about the widespread commercial use of the detailed health-related information they'll collect. So that was two years ago. Two years on, how prescient do you think your comments were and how concerned are you about where we are with the mainstreaming of monitoring, particularly where we are in the world and our positions? You know, I, I think in terms of the wholesale use by the tech companies, specifically of pandemic-related data, I, I'm not sure if the anxiety in those claims has been borne out. I do think that the broader response of thinking about the ways in which the collection of a whole range of digital data has health applications, that's an ongoing process, which I think is we're going to see really dramatically transform uh, the healthcare industry. You know, the reason that tech companies are going there, if you have, you know, incredibly overvalued or very high price to earnings ratios on these companies, they have to continue to expand and they've got to go where the money is. And uh, healthcare is one of the big pots of money that they're interested in expanding into. And they make all kinds of moves in that direction. What interests me is the way in which data that uh, we think of as not health-related data and is not subject to the types of special protection that health-related data gets can become something called emergent health data. There are folks, uh, companies who claim to be able to diagnose, for example, early onset Alzheimer's just by how you use your keyboard and your mouse. So that information you wouldn't think of as medical information. If it can predict the onset of a medical condition that leads to early intervention, that's great. If it can predict the onset of a medical condition that leads to discrimination in employment, insurance, and so on, that's really bad. So uh, we have to think really carefully about how to realize the benefits of that type of technology without succumbing to the harms. One of the areas that I've been interested in because I've got a project on it is facial recognition technology. And it was really interesting to me how during the pandemic, the industries all pivoted towards uh, health-related functions. So the idea early on that touching things might lead to contagion uh, led to a host, a host of applications that would be face operated. So doors, elevators, uh, so they wouldn't have to touch buttons or, or doorknobs uh, instead of uh, retina scans or fingerprint scans for security clearance entrance using facial recognition. They were all pivoting in that direction. They developed technology, uh, the folks who had already been working in this area, to be able to read symptoms off of the body surface. So elevated body temperature, heart rate. There's some folks who claim to be able to do uh, oxygen, blood oxygen saturation, um, to be able to detect people's faces and recognize them even though they're wearing masks, to be able to detect whether they were wearing a mask, whether they're wearing it correctly, to implement systems in enterprises that would be able to track whether people were following social distancing requirements. I haven't seen these, you know, like take off as super widespread applications, but the fact that they're uh, under development kind of shows the direction and they were already moving in this direction and the pandemic kind of accelerated it. This is how I would describe the direction. How do you make physical space as monitorable and trackable as online space? Because that online space is a profitable model as we know. What if you could do something similar in physical space mm. uh, and a variety of different technologies for doing that? And the pandemic kind of gave a boost 
but they haven't become mainstream. I, like, I haven't seen that yet. One of the interesting ones, and it's not so much the health, but just the tracking of movement. So, you know, there was that discussion about COVID safe apps, which didn't really work, but they were to monitor when you got close to someone else. So you could, you know, log the contact and then seeing that same kind of model being used to monitor workplace organizing, for instance, in the state. The other one that strikes me was the use of QR codes by police officers to track down crimes when it was only to plug in to the venue you were, you were going to. So Lizzie, one of the questions I've got is, it may not yet be being used by commercial interests, but it's definitely being used by different levels of you know government and more, not so much to sell your products, but to restrict what you do as a citizen. Yeah, I agree. And that's sort of what I want to ask you about, Mark, because uh, it was interesting to compare and contrast how the two state governments like Western Australia and Victoria responded to police requests for checking information for criminal justice purposes. Because, you know, of course, once you collect this data, then if you're an, a state entity, you become a focus for agencies who want to get access to it, as well as the private sector. So insurance industry being one we've already mentioned, but most obviously criminal justice organisations. And there is a real risk, I suppose, if governments start collecting this information, that then they're going to be asked to use it. And then it generates this responsibility for them to use it in all sorts of public settings, even if that was not the purpose for which it was collected. What do you think about that, Mark? Because obviously then what comes with that is not just a breach of people's rights in a very material way, but also it undermines the public health purpose of the original exercise in collecting data. And I do wonder whether there's anyone really contending with this, either private providers of these kinds of technologies or governments as well, whether they recognise that if they violate the public trust in a public health setting with this tech, they might pay a price that people won't take it up later. I mean, the claim is right on. Once this data is collected, it becomes a honeypot for law enforcement. Uh, if you collect it in commercial settings, it becomes a honeypot for speculative uses of data for you know, all kinds of profiling and targeting. What was interesting to me in the pandemic response, and I'm, I'm curious if, if you're reading this the same way, um, you know, the COVID Safe app got a lot of scrutiny and a lot of media attention. It seemed to tail off a little bit after that. And I don't, I, I don't know quite how to explain that, but you know, a, a kind of tyranny of convenience. Um, you know, some of these, maybe things like the QR code and the check-in became too laborious to, to find alternatives to that. And maybe, you know, it seemed relatively easy. You just press the button and you go in. Um, in commercial settings, it's been really interesting to me to see the dual purposing of QR codes. You know, you go into the cafe here in Melbourne and you do the QR code check-in, but then there's a QR code menu system. It's a separate one, right? And that actually reconfigures, you know, how the workplace works in terms of now you don't you don't need a somebody a server to come to your table or or uh, you don't need to go up to the bar or something. You just go through your QR code, and that creates another set of information. I think all the time uh, th there's this kind of trade-off where certain levels of convenience lead to the perhaps the normalization and adoption of these technologies as we've seen in the online setting. And so you, what we need is kind of constant vigilance. It's not an easy thing to do when the technologies, you know, facilitate the things that we want to do. Look, I'd probably just add a, a point, which again, I've made many times on this. I think the half of the reason why people are prepared to acquiesce to the convenience of this or, or um, see the use these things because of the convenience of them is because they're not aware of what's being done to the data in the back end. I think it's more ignorance than anything else. Um, Sorry to raise this again, I'm raising it in a different context, I hope everyone can understand, but again, I think one of the solutions for this could be, uh, I'm not going to say the term, but putting guardrails around the use of this data so that it can't be used for other purposes. I mean, the, the problem we've got at the moment 
is that something like the Safe WA app or equivalent, whatever it was around the country, I spent most of the last two years at WA, so that's one that's top of mind for me, is that there's just no regulations or, or limited regulations, I should say. It's not like there's none, but limited regulations around what the government can do with that data once it's done. And so once it's been collected. And so I think if there was just this really basic principle of you have to be very specific about what you're collecting data for, it must be for a specific purpose. And that is the only thing you can do with it. And prob probably also on top of that, an obligation to destroy the data after a certain period of time, then I think this goes a long way to addressing a lot of these problems, right? It's, it's a problem on steroids in the real world. It's a problem on steroids when you get to facial recognition and those sort of things, because it, it's just, then you're basically tracking everybody completely all the time. I mean, that, that, that is like full-blown surveillance then rather than just online surveillance. Mm. So I, I just, it's such an urgent issue and yet no one seems to really be grappling with the fact that it is an urgent issue because it's kind of in the background and no one's really seeing what's happening. So mm. again, bring on privacy reform. I think that's just one really substantial way we can address this. Can I go to another tech change and that you've written on, Mark, which is actually within the tertiary sector. So one of the, the changes that was forced on the sector during the last two years was much more remote learning, the use of, you know, these sorts of forums for lectures. My daughter's just started uni and all the lectures are now online, which sort of, I feel really sorry for her because you miss that experience of hanging around the lecture theatre and meeting people afterwards and the tutes are still face-to-face, -face, but the lectures are all online. But you, you've also written about how the technology has been used through when students were doing exams online to, to sort of check, I don't, I don't know quite how they do it, but to basically ensure the integrity of the exam work. So what are some of the changes in your sector and where are you concerned that it might be embraced with a little bit too much gusto as we move out of the lockdown phase? We looked at this remote proctoring because it seemed like an interesting study for uh, one of the technology reactions to the pandemic. I should say, I, I think some of the things that came out of that are generalizable in the sense that even now, of course, as we meet using online platforms, we're finding ways to use these often commercial online systems to reconfigure the way that we socialize, the way that we teach, uh, the way that we work. And that I think that has serious implications. I haven't done work on this, but I, I think some it, it's important to take a look at the type of information that's able to be collected uh, using these platforms, as well as to what it means uh, to have people not necessarily be in, in a workspace that has workspace protections and so on, instead doing things from home. With respect to remote proctoring, there was some initial resistance to this. There, there are different technologies. So the problem is this, you're taking a test, um, a classroom setting, there's somebody who can proctor the test and kind of make sure you are following the rules and so on. What, what happens when you're doing it from home? Um, how do you guarantee that the person who's taking the test is the person who's supposed to be? But then there are additional problems. So the, the system, some of them have built in facial detection that if you look away, and you're not looking down at the test, it knocks you off. If it can't locate your face, sometimes it will knock you off. They found out, and then you've got to come back in and you know explain and take the test over again. And they found out that um, folks with certain disabilities were disadvantaged by this. Some of the cameras were less able to recognize people with darker skin tones. So folks with darker skin tones found themselves getting kicked out over and over and over again because of a bias in the way that the tech worked. So uh, some of the familiar problems with facial recognition cropped up in these remote monitoring systems. But I think there's, there's that bigger question too. What does it do to academic community? What does it do to uh, work community and work life to have uh, these remote 
remote systems in place. And of course, as, as probably many of you have seen, a whole host of workplace monitoring technologies grew up in response to the pandemic, uh, you know, that, that, that allowed much more detailed uh, surveillance of employees than would be possible in the workspace. And, and in some ways, much more draconian enforcement of rules that were nonsensical. You know, like you, you get docked pay if you get up from your computer. That is something I wanted to raise. The scaling up of these kinds of systems or the use of these systems has seen automation. And you, often when we talk about automation, we think about low-skilled jobs being automated, but actually here's an instance of middle management kind of being automated where products like Microsoft Productivity that allows senior managers to check what lots of their staff are doing and get analytics and and various metrics that are very micro-targeted to be able to scale up management activities and then that has all sorts of implications that can be rolled out in other settings. And there's examples of people at, you know, Amazon warehouses being automatically terminated because they've they've done this or that. They've had too much time off their task, which is the parlance they use. But you can see how this kind of, there's this big move towards automating, using technology to automate middle management activities rather than, say, uh, even low-skilled jobs, which is commonly how the narrative goes. I mean, I did want to ask you a bit more about facial recognition, though, if I could, Mark, because this is one of the things I think about recognition technology we often talk about how it doesn't work but then the implication being that would it be better if it did work really well and you know is there a different way to tackle this argument by saying well maybe it shouldn't be deployed at all I I did want to ask you about that because it it is one of those functionalities that comes about by training an algorithm on a huge amount of data or training computer system on a huge amount of data and you know even if you delete the data afterwards even if you've got permission to use it for that purpose you're still then in possession of a very powerful tool so it doesn't necessarily track really well with privacy regulation as a as a solution to that particular problem and you've got this this product that you can sell to government or whatever and if you're clear view ai you can even be sanctioned by the regulator in australia and there'd be no real material consequences for you because you don't comply with the decision and it essentially becomes lawless how do you navigate this kind of question around whether we actually want facial recognition to get better and how you tackle this argument Well, articulating these problems really just is about its functionality rather than whether we should be using it at all? Yeah, I, I think that's a hugely important question. And you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about for a while is the way in which accuracy and bias have been used uh, as the grounds f- uh, for regulating or banning the technology in certain jurisdictions which it looks to me like it becomes a proxy for talking about the real harms. I I don't want to say that those are not real harms. They are real harms. But for another set of real harms uh, that are associated with facial recognition that are much, for some reason, harder to articulate or or more difficult to challenge. And I'm I'm not exactly sure why, because what we're really talking about is, as you both suggested, is, uh, and Dan as well, is is the kind of wholesale reconfiguration of, of what we understand anonymity and privacy in public and shared spaces to be. And that's huge. If we continue to use accuracy and bias as proxies, we're not addressing that particular set of questions. And we're also handing, as you suggest, handing over to the tech sector who will make claims that those are solvable problems. We can resolve that. We just need more data and more powerful processing. So we we just need more information from you. I think the the Clearview case is is an interesting one because, um, you know, they're being sued in, I think it's Illinois, 
a state in the US that has a biometrics protection law. And the claim is how Clearview AI got much of their data is just by scraping available images online. The law says that if you collect biometric information, which the face is considered to be, that you need permission from the individual in order to do that. And so this would be a violation. Uh, but now let's say that law is enforced. That would have quite an interesting impact on the online economy. Uh, if you think about all the other forms of biometric, you know, if if using your mouse or your keyboard is biometric information uh, and you can't collect that without permission, you, you'd get quite an interesting outcome. Anyway, that's only for that law in the U.S. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how it how it plays out. I've looked at that law. I do think it's quite interesting because it also prohibits um, profiting off biometric information. And, you know, you talk about using a keyboard and stuff, but there's also like your gait is potentially um, biometric information, obviously your voice as well. Your as- gait? Yeah, like how you walk. Really? <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, what do I they mean, do with that? I guess health, they identify yeah. you without, you know, mm. without using your face. So anyway. Well, they use it to supplement. So they say it's much more accurate if you use gait and face together, for example. Gait and face. Hey, I want to take it one step further, this discussion, and set up a bit of a straw man maybe. So 2001, 9-11, we have this global event which fills the Western world with terror that, there are enemies amongst our midst and we can track them if we could only get inside their computers and understand what websites they were going and who they were sending emails to and who they were ringing on the phone. And government and tech companies agreed that this, this was such a risk that they would open the door on something that had never been contemplated before. And out of that became this, oh, wow, if we've got this information, we can do we can we can build a business of it. We can we can be granular in our advertising. Guys like Dan built their careers around understanding how they could reach different audiences based on data they'd never had before, and it was all really good until it wasn't. I think that's a fairly Is unfair characterisation. I know, but yeah, we'll go career, back. Anyway, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll let just, you go on. I said it was a straw man. It's a straw Dan. <laughs> a straw Dan. So, and I'll start with my straw Dan here. So, if we think what this global event has done it has said that we are prepared to track our movements in public places we're prepared to work on systems that extract our data on a day-to-day basis many of us we 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 will jump online in whole lots of different ways that we probably haven't done before i've always used the analogy we're getting deeper into the internet i'm not saying we're in the metaverse but we're not just sort of sharing content we're in a real moment now all of us so What's the straw, Dan, think the business models are going to look like coming out of this? So you've got granular information about what people do online, but also what they do in the real world. How's that going to be valuable? And what should we be thinking about now to make sure that we don't let the genie out of the bottle and create a broader world of just constant monitoring that can be used both by corporates and government in ways that aren't in our interests. Look, I'm not sure if I've got any great insight here other than to say, I think we're already seeing what the business models of the future are going to be. And and I think the one that is probably most, that is top of mind for me is what we've touched on a couple of times already in this discussion today, and that is, and that is healthcare. Because you can now determine so much about a person's health by these respective data points, you know, their gait, as you've mentioned, Lizzie, as well as their tone of voice, their, their keystrokes on a computer, all these different things. The application of that data, I mean, there's pros and cons to this, right? It could mean that we can identify illnesses and head them off at the pass 
far earlier than we otherwise would have been able to previously, that's obviously really welcome. The downside is, uh, I think you touched on this earlier, Mark, what happens then if that goes, gets funneled through to the health insurers and, and they can then use that information to discriminate against people or, or whatever else. So the concern I have about all of this stuff is the same thing that we talked about many times. And that is that there's so much data being produced now in so many different ways. The problem is, is that only a small handful of Silicon Valley based companies are the ones that are aggregating it. And that just gives them tremendous ability to become these Uber companies where you know, Google or Apple or whatever, they're not, they're no longer just tech companies, they're healthcare companies, they're e-commerce companies, as well as being advertising companies and everything else. Do we really want to live in a world where basically these are like kind of new nation states and we're all kind of subservient to it? I, I would have thought not. So I don't know, Pete, I don't know if that's a great insight. I just think perhaps, perhaps putting some restrictions on the ability for these massive companies to be able to do this as a mm. way to head this off at the past a little bit. But I'd be interested to hear what, uh, mm. what Mark and Lizzie think. Yeah, Mark, part of your project, the, the broader conglomeration of universities looking down the, the track at AI and societies looking at some of these issues, What if, if you were, instead of working for the forces of good to understand it and wanted to make a buck out of it, where would you be putting your money at the moment? Yeah, in terms of pessimistic predictions, I, the direction we're headed in, um, I think, is is if you, you know, if you think about some of the things that are shaping up around so-called dark patterns, the, the goal of being able to collect a comprehensive image is to be able to see patterns, right? So it's not even it's not about individuals, it's not even about populations, it's it's about patterns. But what happens is a lot of these uses, I think, that they're coming up with for the technology, they lend themselves to reasonably predictive, repeatable events. Often the alibi for collecting the data is exceptional events, as you mentioned, the 9-11 attacks and so on. Those are much harder to predict statistically, right? The, the data doesn't necessarily lend itself to that, even though the kind of infinitely deferred promises, if we just get enough data, we'll get that too. I don't know, perhaps, but it would be uh, some you know, potentially infinite amount of data, but it's the predictable stuff. Uh, you know, th this is why, you know, marketers and, you know, your phone knows where your home is and where you're going next at a particular time of day, because most of us, most of the time follow relatively predictive patterns. The goal is to be able to capture that and to find ways to, to use that to engineer folks. There's, a, there's an example that I, I, it's a silly, it's a small example, but it seems interesting and telling to me. Uh, there, there was a company called Dopamine Labs. I don't know if it still exists and apps would go to them to try to figure out how to maximize engagement and so on. And one of the pieces of advice they gave to, I can't, it was maybe Instagram. I can't remember who it was, is if somebody posts something, if you give them all their likes all at once, they'll look at those likes and then they'll, you know, leave. But if you trickle those likes in, you know, a few at a time, they'll keep coming back. And what's interesting to me about that is it's a way of engineering behavior without telling people what you're doing because you've got enough data to be able to figure out how they'll behave. Um, that's the model of control that we're looking at for the future, right? It's a model of control that's based on large scale prediction and figuring out how to vary patterns in order to guide people's behavior. An interesting video, if you want like a kind of paranoid view of the world, uh, Google selfish ledger video, where uh, Google imagines it gets enough data to be able to structure the choices that people have in ways that will guide their behavior and, and you know, do it for good, right? A kind of benevolent uh, dictatorship of, of the algorithm. But uh, it's, it's worth taking a look at because it's about a form of social control, which is not ideological, mm -hmm. right? It's not like you have to believe something or you have to tell something mm -hmm. to people, but it's a form of control, which is based on just engineering and architecting choices and opportunities, right? And to do that, you need a malleable environment. Online is great because it's malleable. Um, somebody like 
uh, Zuckerberg is interested in Meta because it's that's that's a malleable environment. If you can inhabit virtual worlds, you can arch architect the choices quite easily. It's harder to do in physical space, although they're working on it. I know it's a cliche, Lizzie, but more brave new world than 1984. <laughs> Yeah, you, you do wonder about that because also there's this tendency then to kind of say, well, surely there's good things that come from being able to socially engineer people as well. We could, we just need to put the right people in charge or the right incentives in place. The benevolent tech dictator. Yeah, yeah. and I, I, and I don't. I mean, I think that argument falls down pretty quickly. <laughs> um, but Can you could do it. Yeah, for sure. Like because you know, who's in charge? <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting me in charge because I literally don't think I should be in charge. But, you know, like yeah. it should be about, you know, people have this, there's a tendency to to encourage people to think giving people autonomy is a terrible thing. They can't be trusted. You know, Facebook's such a cesspit of bad behaviour. Well, actually, it's the structure that kind of creates a lot of this noise around what is bad behaviour. And we do have to give people the right to make a choice about how they spend their time rather than be governed by by algorithms or even people with good intentions because that can't be guaranteed as good outcomes and so you know we have to be really careful I think also about feeding then narratives perhaps unintentionally that there can be good outcomes from this level of social control and that there's some forms of social engineering are, are valuable because that does that is like a tech solutionist problem to social problems too I think but anyway yeah it's a really interesting discussion yeah it's been a really interesting discussion. That's sort of taken us through to the it's hour. It's a reflection and on Mark. Maybe Mark should be in charge, the algorithm. <laughs> I think Mark should be in Yeah, benevolent <laughs> dictator. Yeah. Anything in for the diaries for the next week, guys, that we should be letting these good people know about next fortnight? Uh, we have an event coming up as part of our program. Do. We always do. <laughs> it's great. Um, yeah, coming up soon. Uh, next week, actually, it's one of the events we've been holding in relation to rebalancing the internet economy and what it would look like for activists if if your major social platform media platforms were actually put to the use of people trying to organize their communities and make social change so that's the idea of the event come along i mean if you don't sign up to our email you will miss out on these things but you can sign up to it and we occasionally communicate with you to tell you about it so i encourage you to do that and mark you're I, I guess with the election likely to be caught over the next fortnight i know dan will be busy too with the election but he, some of the tools you've been developing will be sort of tested in the real world yes so we have the Australian Ad Observatory, which is uh, kind of related to the NYU Ad Observatory, but also to work that The Guardian has done in the past using a, a tool to collect ads from Facebook to see how political ads might be distributed during the election. Excellent, guys. Well, um, have a great fortnight. I suspect next time we meet, we'll be in the middle of the campaign. We'll see if we can get maybe a few of the candidates prepared to, to answer the hard questions from the Burning Platforms panel and, and guests. But thanks for for being part of it, everyone, this week and look after yourself. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live in a virtual town hall and if you'd like to attend one of these events, you can register at the Centre for Responsible Technology's website through the Australia Institute. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in a fortnight.